the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you extremely early on this Wednesday morning, a graveyard slot in what is a bit of a graveyard period for professional cycling, but we'll find a few things to talk about nonetheless. My name's Daniel Freeber, I am in London this week, and I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast. Joining me this week, we have one regular on our motley carousel of friends, experts, and agent provocateurs, and we have someone else who has been on before, but not for quite a while. So without further delay, let's introduce them. Try not to use up too much of our allocated hour doing so. Joining me first from Pietrasanta in Tuscany, a town known for its marble. But this man proved that he has a heart of stone this week by insinuating on social media that Jonas Vingegaard winning the inaugural Singapore Criterium ahead of Criterium. Head of Chris Froome wasn't one of the most thrilling, hard-fought and even poignant battles of the cycling season with one tour champion overpowering four-time winner. We will henceforth be calling him the Alex Jones of cycling punditry. It is our conspiracy theorist in residence, Brian Nygaard. Thank you. I was hoping for a Roy Keane, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, we'll get on to the Singapore Criterium, which we all enjoyed. And we were all gripped by um, later. But first of all, I must ask... Um, must inquire about the health of your cat, who was, well, he's joining you on the recording this week, isn't he? And we know he's been in the wars. He's had a poorly poor. <laughs> yeah, he broke his leg uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then I'm rushing off to uh, to get a hold of a calf because I'm taking him for his checkup today. Um, but he's, he's, he's better. He's actually way too good because he's not able to sit still. And and I need to apologize in advance if he's going to make some noise on the podcast. But uh, so then, you know, if there's like whining in the background, it's, it's not me. And cat lovers can admire pictures of Brian's marvelous beast on Brian's Instagram account. Where do they find that, Brian? Remind us. And uh, I think just my name and and, and search engine, and then uh, I'll, I'll see how many I can <laughs> how many I can let in at a time. Well, Brian, um, your punishment for those scurrilous conspiracy theories is that in a minute you're going to be called upon to defend your anti-Avenipal propaganda before a spokesperson for the great nation of Belgium, <laughs> who I'm going to introduce now. Johnny is not from Belgium, in fact, but Cologne in Germany, I believe. I think last night he made a trip over the border with his son to watch a Champions League football match. Let's alienate a few listeners already by mentioning football. Um, it's a gentleman who has... Covered 24 Tours de France, I think at last count, 22 Giri d'Italia, four Vueltas a España. He's worked as a pre-race reporter, a mid-race reporter, a post-race reporter and a commentator creating more memories aboard a motorcycle than Valentino Rossi, Lara Croft and Steve McQueen combined. They call him the Wheeler Man, Wheeler Man. He is half man, half bike to quote the title of an Eddie Merckx biography not authored by yours truly. He is Renard Schotter. Renard, how are you? Morning, Daniel. Guten Morgen. <laughs> <laughs> How was Leverkusen? You were watching Club Bruges, your beloved Club Bruges, in Leverkusen, not in Cologne. Leverkusen, a German town, there's not much, I don't think, to write home about, except for the football team and a, a big chemical company. But how was the match? Uh, the, the game was tense, but uh, boring. But Bruges, <laughs> Bruges got through, and that's what counts. I mean, they got second in their group, and if anybody would have told that before the start of the Champions League that Bruges would make it to make it to the last 16 I would have called them um, nuts but then hey look here they are at uh, the last 16 and uh, looking forward to the ballot on um, on November 7th so they, they will 
probably uh, have Bayern Munich now or something, or maybe Manchester City. So that that can be an amazing uh, history, and um, I'm, it's fingers crossed. And and I feel like like I'm back in my my young days as a Bruges fan because I was about then to say. Yeah. We, we made it to a couple of um, Europa Cup finals, UEFA Cup at the time, and and Europa Cup won, and we lost twice from Liverpool. So that was back in the seventies. So it's a long time ago, really, really long time ago. So, Renat, in Belgium, you are one of the voices of cycling. Belgian listeners will certainly be familiar with your voice from sports' coverage um, throughout the cycling season. But tell us, what came first for you, cycling or football? Um, that's a very difficult question. Yeah, um, well, yes and no. I, I think it must have been football, but I was five years at the time and I was really... Uh, my father wasn't interested in football, but Bruges were champion back in the, in the early 70s, and that's how I started to, to become a Bruges fan. But then yeah, I, 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 cycling was always on the background, and I think it was kind of a parallel universe. It's always been there, and it was all about sports, so it was not only about soccer or cycling. It was everything related to sports uh, actually uh, really influenced my youth. In Belgium, cycling obsessed Belgium, do you suffer from the same malaise as we do, whereby mentioning football immediately, immediately alienates a large chunk of our audience? Well, I think it's 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 less so because cycling is is so much undisputed, undefeated, number one <laughs> at, at at certain times in in the year. So it's I think it plays less of a role than than out of Belgium. So um, yeah, that's. We are the exception. We are the world champions of watching cycling, cycling in Belgium, and that's what creates, um, I think, a different point of view if you compare it to the rest of the world. Uh, sometimes even football fans have to admit it's about cycling, and it's the only thing that counts. Well, there's going to be a lot of, not, not just cycling, but the mutant form of cycling known as cyclocross, believe it or not. We're going to be talking about that um, later on in the episode. But let's start, as per tradition, with a news roundup. Let's cover some of the headlines uh, over the last week. You chaps are free to interject insult and correct and we'll begin with some sad news namely that Bahrain victorious rider 2021 Paris-Roubaix European road race and Italian national road race winner Sonny Colbrelli has announced his retirement from professional cycling at the age of 32 Colbrelli suffered cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated after stage one of the Volta Catalunya which he finished second in March. He subsequently had a defibrillator fitted, which made him ineligible to race in Italy and jeopardised the continuation of his career. Um, he has, chaps, been riding a bike in recent months, but only ever at a pretty leisurely pace. And he's now formally announced that his career is over. Um, he said that he's grateful for the life he's had and the the life that he risked losing and which has given him a second chance um in total he won 34 times as a professional including well we mentioned Paris-Roubaix but also he won stages Paris-Nice the Tour de Suisse and the Dauphiné and that Paris-Roubaix victory in 2021 will indeed remain his last victory I mean we talked about this quite a bit at the time chaps but um I suppose for the avoidance of doubt for the just to clarify this um there were issues with Cobrelli continuing his career particularly in Italy because it's um it's effectively outlawed it's effectively not allowed for um sports competitive sports people elite sports people 
to uh, to race, to play, to compete with the defibrillator, and that is not because that is not because of the risk of the defibrillator malfunctioning, but it's because there is a risk of it being dislodged, particularly um, in something like a bike race. So it was always going to be difficult for him to come back, and there were people talked about workarounds, loopholes. I mean, we've seen. Um, Brian York and Patrick Christian Eriksen, he's come to play football in the UK. He's playing for Manchester United, having had a defibrillator fitted after his um, cardiac arrest. But um, yeah, I mean, he came from, uh, came from Inter, didn't he? He, had, he couldn't yeah, continue he did. in Italy. Yeah, Italy has the strictest rules on this of any country, I think, in, well, certainly in Europe um, or the world. But, um, yeah, it's it's sad news for Cobrelli, isn't it, Chaps? But at least, you know, at 32, I mean, he had a good career, a late blooming career and um, crowned, obviously, by that victory, which is now looking back, very poignant victory in Paris Bay at the end of 2021. Another Italian retiree, Vincenzo Nibali, has been revealing details of his post-racing retirement life. Uh, Nibali will work as an ambassador and technical advisor to the Pro Continental team being launched by former Dimension Data Chief Doug Ryder. The team will be called Q36.5 and is reportedly going to be represented by a number of riders who raced for World Tour teams in 2022. I don't think any of these are confirmed yet, but um, Matteo Badilati, who's at Groupon FDJ, is supposedly going there. Mark Donovan um, of DSM. The ex-Trek pair, um, Brambilla, Gianluca Brambilla and Matteo Moschetti. Filippo Conca from Lotto Sudal and Jack Bauer and Damien Housen who are leaving Bike Exchange. Jacob, um, you, have you chaps heard too much about this project? Um, it seems to be widely accepted that it's happening, but not too much has been confirmed yet. I mean, I saw yesterday there was an, an amicable split between Trek and Simon Pedro. And you sort of see these these movements where you where you kind of think that this is this is the, the way they're going. And and I saw the name also, which refers to a, an Italian clothing brand. And I... And, my best guess it's a placeholder for the application until they announce the 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 real financial backer and the naming rights uh, sponsor for the team um but it it's certainly ambitious and and, and i don't think nibali has to work uh, now that he's had such a long and illustrious and probably also profitable career so i i have the feeling it's it's a relatively ambitious project that's probably aiming for the world tour also in a, in in a few years time I mean, it's interesting as far as the transfer market's concerned. We're sort of seeing a two-speed system now whereby the big names are sort of snapped up and tied down to contracts very early in the year, probably earlier than ever. And then the sort of second tier, the the riders who are on one, two years contract, they're finding deals later and later, sort of into October and November. Well, I'd say any any good, any new team is a good team. I think cycling needs new teams, but um, of course... We don't want stories like ghost teams coming up and then disappear. Like uh, we still don't know what's going to happen with the uh, the BMB project um, uh, around around Cavendish. I mean that remains to be seen, and and those things are things of the past now <laughs> coming up again. Let's hope that that's um, that's not the future of cycling because um, cycling needs a new income. I think. Um, Cancellara is also um, up and running with a new project is, yeah. and, and it looks good and I think if, if uh, Fabian Cancellara puts his shoulders on a project like that then, then I'm quite sure the, in the end it also 
must be and will be a, a world tour story. So I think we have to be happy with any any new team coming up and um, I'm looking forward to whatever team shows up because you have the probable relegation or the, the new category Androni is wanting, wanting to play in. So there's some room there in Italy. So um, everybody's welcome, I think, at the moment. Renat, you mentioned B&B, uh, more transfer news just regarding them. Well, there's still nothing confirmed on Mark Cavendish's future as of Wednesday morning. Uh, La Gazzetta dello Sport uh, reported yesterday, I think, that Movistar may be an option, but that now sounds like a storyline too far-fetched even for El Dia Menos Pensado or the least expected day, the Movistar documentary. Um, in fact, the Spanish team themselves have already pointed out that their roster is full for 2023. Um, I still expect him, Mark Cavendish, to sign for B&B or what was B&B, but it remains to be seen what kind of budget they're going to have and whether it's at the level that was reported, expected, speculated about a few weeks ago. Uh, former Tinkoff Saxo Bank team owner Oleg Tinkoff has given up his Russian citizenship in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Tinkoff says, said that he couldn't be associated with a fascist country that started a war with their peaceful neighbour and killing people daily and was killing people daily. Um, Brian, we've had a few, I think we've had a Tinkoff story from you before. Renat, you must have had you must have had, um, as I did, some fun interactions with Mr. Tinkov over the years, possibly when he was clad in just... I did an interview with him once at the Vuelta where he was wearing only Speedos, which was a sobering experience, I must, <laughs> but a memorable one. Oh, yeah, of course. I've, I've interviewed uh, Tinkov numerous times um, for a small story from the past. I, mm, it's early early morning to, to to think about Tinkoff right now, but I must say I'm... Yeah, certainly I'm, to think of Tinkoff in his Speedos and his budget yeah. smugglers. No, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> and with, with the pink uh, haircuts or something, uh, yeah, that, 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 that gives the image. I must say it's a very bold move, um, not only to do it, to... Um, to, to go away from, step away from his Russian nationality. But I think the comments he posted on that, really, I must say, the guy is really without fear, I'd say. Because um, if you write down what he has written down, then that's, that's yeah, I think, uh, that's really challenging what he did there. And, uh, and I think not a lot of people would dare to do that. And then the, the personal history of Thinkoff with, with his uh, his cancer story, then he has, he's had troubles with... Um, with um, financial stories, with the uh, American tax uh, and whatever. I mean, there's, there's a lot to, to all I think of. And um, in a way, you'd, you'd wish that, that a guy like Thinkoff would come back to cycling uh, because he, he made so much color for uh, for a team. And, and besides it, and he, he gave a lot of people um, uh, for a lot of years a good job so um, yeah I, I don't know it's a very difficult story but I can't say I, I was uh, against Tinkoff I, I was rather in favour of him I think it was a colourful figure and it was always um, a pleasure to do an interview with him because he was so sharing and it was very exuberant and, and it's the kind of sponsors you only met like like hmm. Once in a decade, and yeah, that was yeah. that was the issue, wasn't it? As a sort of interviewer, as a journalist, um, you had mixed feelings because you were very mindful when you're interviewing interviewing him, almost syllable by syllable, that what he was giving you was fantastic clickbait, fantastic copy. But often, you know, particularly in my case, um, I had people back at base 
sort of balking, wincing at everything that was being said and, and often not wanting to use the interviews because they were so outrageous. And um, But from one very controversial figure to another, that's you, Brian Nygaard, um, <laughs> I mentioned the ASO criterion in Singapore. Well, Brian, you can sneer as much as you want. Um, while I tell the listeners that Jonas Vingegaard did win with a scintillating, unexpected and certainly unscripted attack in the final kilometre... Um, as already stated, Chris Froome was second out sprinting Nibali, the aforementioned Nibali, who was third. And um, while he was in Singapore, Vingegaard told L'Equipe that he hopes to defend his Tour de France title next year and not go to the Giro d'Italia, as some have suggested. Brian, we spoke last week about the fact that Jonas Vingegaard was not at the Tour de France presentation. And in fact, he was invisible from the Tour de France presentation. He wasn't even there um, by a video link now i think i think i'm right in saying that i don't was it on twitter brian was it on social media that you had something to say about his media presence or lack of media presence over the last few months it was actually an article i wrote for for the newspaper i worked for uh that was out uh last friday it was um i did an analysis of the tour de france parcours and then i i did a separate um part about uh the life of jonas Vingega and the media uh, post his uh, his tour win which has been quite remarkable uh, in as a contrast i would say to his uh, you know this incredible story it was in during the summer in denmark and then his his complete absence from from the media uh, since then and it's been you know knowing danish colleagues it's been very very hard to to get any any time with him he's not done a, any interviews with major newspapers he's you know, not riding the worlds is, is obviously anything sporting wise is, is completely his decision. But I, I think that especially probably the team has let themselves down in, in not making him available at all. And, and he, uh, he responded to that criticism. Um, a journalist asked him in Singapore and he said that this is the way he does it. And if anyone has a, a problem with it, it's not, uh, it's not his problem. It's their problem, which I find a bit um, uh, guarded. I, you know, I'm, it's certainly not the way that I would go about it, and 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 that's that's what it is. But I think it's a shame that that he's he's so difficult to get an appointment with, and he's so difficult to to just to just to get a normal interview with him. And it, I I think it's it's not I can't say it's disrespectful not to show up at the tour presentation. He must have coordinated that with the ASO, but to be completely absent, I I, I think that's a shame more than anything. Brian. Did you see this coming from Vingegaard? Because the scenario that I would have envisaged, um, having witnessed, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, having um, having witnessed the way the media is with its athletes in Denmark generally, with its cyclists generally, and the, the level of anticipation ahead of the Grand Depart, then to see a Dane win the Tour... Um, I would have expected it to be pandemonium, um, you know, scenes like we saw with Bjarne Reese in 1996 and for a completely opposite scenario whereby um, that individual would be completely besieged by media interest. And I, I you know, not knowing Vingegaard that well, I, I would have almost forecast the, uh, the opposite scenario where he did too much. I don't know. He... Um, talking about parallels with the past that he maybe went down the Jan Ulrich route of, of going to every criterium, every event, every party and running into difficulties that way. But it's been the opposite. He's sort of disappeared. Yeah, Did it's you actually, see this coming? A little bit, maybe. I, you know, it, it, He's been quite open about how overwhelming it was for him, uh, even just you know finishing second last year and then the run into this year where he you know eventually turned out 
to win it. And I think it's understandable that he needed to pull the pin afterwards for a period because, you know, we, we saw the homecoming, the the parade in, in Copenhagen, which was very overwhelming. And and and, and I, I think that's understandable. But, but then continuing through actually a period where he's not racing very much, it, it prob- I think it would have been more timely just to, to do a little bit so that also for him to get used to it, you know, I'm not sure that he can, as a defending champion and, and as a potential favorite for the race next year. Also, I think it's pretty absurd that he, that they actually haven't made a statement whether he's going or not, but that's that's a separate thing. But I, I think it would be for him to learn to take on that role. And, and I, I don't think anyone in, in this forum sees him as an interim, interim figure in, in the continuing story of the tour. I think it would be healthy for him to, to take on a little bit more of that role because once you win, you can't always just say that it's at your convenience when you want to do something and when you don't. One one counterpoint to that, one thing I would say in his favour is that he's obviously not motivated by fame and particularly not money either because um, one reason why riders, you know, do get paraded around and get overextended after a big success like winning the Tour de France is that they want to strike while the iron's hot or their advisors, their entourage does. They see it as an opportunity to make a lot of money. That's obviously not the case with Vingegaard. He's also still living in Denmark, Exactly surprises me. Exactly. Um, how much tax will he be paying in Denmark? Well, we just had a, a change in, in well, we had a general election last night and it, it's uh, the Social Democrats are staying in power for, for the next foreseeable future. So without knowing the, the specific deductions that he's able to make, he, he, would, he would be in the highest tax bracket. So that would be pretty close to six. Yeah, he would, I think he would pay around 68% tax of his, of his personal income, which is significant. That sounds even worse than, than in Belgium. I think, I think we're up there with the, with the highest tax countries in the world. Yeah. I thought we were world champion at that one, but okay. I with with pleasure we give that crown to Denmark. They'll <laughs> <laughs> happily accept it. We saw at the general election. Well, chaps, um, uh, a couple more things on as far as news is concerned. Um, last week we mentioned speculation about Jay Vine being bought out of his Alpecin Phoenix contract, moving to UAE Team Emirates. Well, Vine, who you'll remember, won two stages of the Vuelta Espana, has admitted that various teams did approach him about a move this winter, but he says that he's staying put for the moment. Meanwhile, um, in the same way that Vine's performances on Zwift earned him a contract with Alperson, another Antipodean rider, a 30-year-old New Zealander, Michael Vink, has got himself a deal with UAE. That was also in large part due to his performances on another online cycling app or platform, and that is my whoosh. My Wush was developed in the UAE. They're a partner of the UAE team. And the, apparent, uh, the management apparently noticed Vink thanks to some of his performances on the app. And guess what, chaps? Well, I spoke to Michael Vink about how he got that deal earlier today. So let's hear from him. I suppose I tried so hard for so many years and, and probably had a lot better years than I've had the last 12 months on the road. And then it was kind of the year I was at least expecting it with the sort of quieter season that I've had. And then, yeah, I sort of got contacted by the team to, um, basically asked through some testing and I sort of refused to believe it. Um, I just sort of thought, oh, yeah, they're just interested or potentially just testing either something after the, the Wish platform or something like that. And, um, yeah, I sort of refused to get my hopes up and, and did the testing and then got the phone call that, um, yeah, I was, was on the team. So it all happened extremely quickly. I'm not someone that ever really did Zwift or anything like that. Like, I, I kind of started using the platform in all honesty for the prize money and then very quickly realised um, sort of how 
tag with the benefits were for the the real world on road form as well and it was kind of a double-edged thing it was you know a way to make a bit, a bit of pocket money and also to to improve my road form and i definitely had some of the, the best leagues of my career after using the platform uh, it was just a shame that sort of with covid and everything that there was not much racing around it for that period but yeah just sort of went from strength to strength uh, after yeah first first trying the platform like i know there's some guys who just do crazy numbers you know and it's not just about the numbers, but it's, I suppose, how you produce the numbers and when you produce the numbers. And I think that's what kind of impressed the team. It wasn't just that I was winning races. It was probably more so how I was winning races. I was, I was sort of the guy that sort of would, would rather ride in the rain than, than ride on Zwift. Right. And because of that, it was sort of something that I'd never really engaged in. But it was sort of, yeah, like I said, the prize money was what originally attracted me to it. And once I did it, I... You know, honestly, I didn't really like it at first, but, you know, if it's, it, was, it was good prize money and I didn't really have too much else to do, so I thought I'd keep going, and then it sort of became almost addictive after the, the first few months. Right, okay. And the testing you did was where, Michael? Uh, in Christchurch, yeah, so it's basically ah. a, like a lactate top type test. Okay, okay. Um, so basically a, a run test with certain stages and then um, lactate um, measurements taken every five minutes or so. Right, and... Is that is that been a theme throughout your cycling career that you've always performed well in tests in that kind of test? Um, not particularly, to be honest, um, because yeah, like I said, I've, I sort of never really liked riding the, the home trainer as much, and of course, tests are almost always done on a sort of stationary bike type environment. And because I'd never done it, I wasn't really that used to it. I always had some really good numbers on the road, but then when it came to testing, I was was kind of average. But um, yeah, after sort of I think it was eighteen months, I'd been doing worse by the time I was doing the testing. Mm. And I'd sort of become quite accustomed to it and almost sort of like a specialist in that type of effort. Mm. And I think that was probably a big thing. Like lots of guys would lose 5-10% of their power uh, indoors versus outdoors. And that was definitely me at the start. Then after, yeah, sort of, I'd say probably six months of doing a weekly, I was pretty much up around the same powers I was doing on the road on the stationary trainer. And how does that happen, Mike? I mean, what what is it specifically that you think something like Wush is training uh, that that you might not get any other way i mean is it uh, is there an element of sort of the pedaling efficiency on a stationary bike is it a mental thing is it judging effort well how would you describe like how how has it enabled you to make those improvements i think it's just the intensity um and because they're quite short you're always kind of fresh when you do the efforts so you might have a race that finishes up a two-minute climb, and normally on the road you'd race for three, four hours or whatever, then hit a hill. But on, on Woosh or other, other platforms, you're kind of riding, you know, often not that hard for the first sort of 40 minutes. So you've almost sort of just perfectly warmed up, and then you've just got some super intense efforts. And I, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Even when you do efforts on the road, you always ride for 40, 50 minutes before, and the ride ends up being, you know, three hours or something. But, but with uh, indoor stuff, it's really just full gas. Yeah, and you're always feeling pretty fresh, so you can always sort of hit those, those peak numbers. Michael, I suppose the obvious, the other obvious question is, how, why hasn't this happened before for you because i see you know 2011 you were on the trek live strong team a lot of guys on that team went on to have decent you know good world tour careers um it's happened later for you in, in sum up for me why you think it, it didn't happen earlier i think i'm just a sort of rider that it's really hard to, to get results i'm someone that sort of can do everything quite well but nothing really brilliantly so i, I could always climb pretty well and sprint okay and it was pretty good at time trials but never good enough one thing to really get a result like i'm the sort of guy that can ride all day at you know 300 watts plus but that's not how you win races and really get noticed it really sort of tends to be a results thing and i've suppose i've had certainly my fair share of, of bad luck and it's i think the last few years it's been really hard for 
in the pros to sort of to sort of break in because it's been sort of quite competitive in the in the, in the pro peloton. There's sort of was times in my career that I had really really good results, but there was you know lots and lots of pro teams that were folding, and the market was was really competitive. So it's just kind of been one of those I guess perfect storm things. Yeah, I've was forever telling having people telling me that you know like I, sh- I should be on the world tour, I should be doing this and that, but. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter what people said. You know, you were kind of, you'd kind of made it all you had into and I mm. hadn't. Um, and that was just sort of what I came to accept, I suppose. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't really want to be the, the best rider never to make it. But I sort of got the point in my career where I'd sort of done it for long enough that I was prepared to sort of, yeah, just see if what it was and accept whatever I was given. Financially, it was okay. I've always been, you know, pretty good at sort of getting by and you know mm. various things and odd jobs here and there. But it was more just a case of that, you know, I was I'm 30 now, and at that point, when I first started, I didn't have a house or anything like that, and I didn't want to get to that point where I was sort of 35 or even 30 and realised that, you know, my life's getting away from me, and I've spent the last 10 years racing my bike all over the world, and and now I'm sort of behind the eight ball with just sort of I guess being just a generally successful person. So, mm. yeah, it was, I suppose, a bit of a case of that, you know, particularly with, you know, things like property and things, there's always a bit of pressure Yeah, with that. Um, yeah, and just sort of, I guess, building a bit of a life because I think at 30 is almost a bit of a turning point, really. Like, in your 20s, you have a lot of fun. You sort of travel the world and, and do those things, and it felt like a bit of a crunch point for me. And, again, that was another point with, with this worst thing. You know, I realised I could actually make good money, and because of that, I thought, oh, this is actually really serious. You know, this is what could, you know, be the difference between being able to pay my mortgage and not and yeah. so I took it extremely seriously well I guess you've got all sorts of I don't know whether they're anxieties or thoughts about what you sort of going into I mean one thing I don't have to tell you Michael and Jay Vine has experienced this um people will if, if as soon as you crash or as soon as you have any issue with bike handling in a race people will say oh it's because you know he was discovered um on an online platform he's only ever raced in you know down under New Zealand or whatever the roads are wider he can't handle his bike I mean how how, how do you stack up on that score are you pretty confident on that score that you'll be okay yeah I'm, I'm the complete opposite like I'm, I'm the sort of guy that was just the purest cyclist you know and I was always the guy that used to sort of bob off the indoor stuff and I'd always like to I'd, like I said I'd rather go training in the rain and I do, you know, I suppose my young years, lots of mountain biking as well, and I was just a guy that loved getting out fresh air, and that was what was really sort of attracting me to cycling more so than the motivation mm. to ever really win some big races, and that's really what's sort of driven me. But, yeah, with, with this worst thing, like I said, with, with the money involved and also the realisation that I was sort of at a turning point in my career, it was really time to sort of take things more seriously and actually treat a lot more of a job. I suppose like I've always been serious but this was the only time in my career that I've really had to had to be serious I suppose Michael just practically speaking over the next few weeks how does life change I mean do you have to are you moving where are you moving to and yeah what the next few weeks look like for you yeah I mean obviously um, I'll be living in Europe next year so um, certainly this is the time to to sort that out so apartments and things and living arrangements and, and finances and things and getting that sorted so I don't have to stress about it during the season. And also the realisation that it is going to be a pretty massive year um, and it's a long season as well. So certainly mm. uh, not getting too involved in the New Zealand summer, which is going to be hard. Yeah, I was about to say. So yeah. many core cool races here, but you've really got to look at the bigger picture. And luckily I've sort of done it long enough that I know that. Like I've, I've certainly been a guy that's had fantastic form in November, December, and then gone over to Europe and, and crashed sort of, you know, um, form-wise sort of quite early. And I'm definitely older and wiser, which I think is going to help me a lot going into it. Like, obviously, as a 30-year-old that's raced, you know, UCI level for 10 years, you've certainly seen a few things and learned a few things, and I know a lot about my body. So I think hopefully I can hit the ground running pretty quick in Europe. 
particularly with the one-year deal with, with UAE, I really want to get everything right. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. If you'd like to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com, of course. But also check them out on social media. You can follow Super Sapiens Inc. on both Twitter and Instagram. And recently they've been posting some really interesting content on both of those social media networks uh, on uh, Twitter this week. There was a post about the way that males and females respond differently and have different glucose responses. And I suppose that was another reminder that we are all different and we do all respond to the way that we eat and rest and train and respond to stress. And our glucose responses are all very much individual. And Super Sapiens can help you learn how you respond and then tailor a nutrition plan to get the best out of yourself. Now, Super Sapiens have been our title sponsors since the start of the year and In no small part, their support enabled me and Simon to go off and ride the Tour de Cosse, our cycle tour of the Scottish Football League grounds. And the series is finally going out now. It's being released daily on weekdays. The first episode went out on Monday. We'll take a brief pause over the weekend and then it will resume next week. I think by this stage we're heading up the Ayrshire coast or perhaps homing in on Glasgow. Um, But the episodes are online and it's evergreen content so you don't need to binge it all now if you don't want to you can save it and listen to it over the winter i hope everybody is enjoying our adventures on two wheels uh, supported by super sapiens of course the tour de cos on our free feed now it really is time to hand back to daniel brian and renart for this week's episode well renart we mainly recruited you today as a bulwark against brian's anti Nepal propaganda um, but we are going to talk mainly about Belgian cycling and the fantastic year that Belgian cycling has had in this part. I'm going to start um, both of you with a quote from Brian's beloved Singapore Criterium of the weekend. It was from Alejandro Valverde, the grand old Duke of Spanish cycling, the outgoing grand Duke of Spanish cycling. And he said that Remco Evenepoel is the best rider in the world by a long way. Uh, Renard. What did you make of that? Well, that's a huge compliment coming from Valverde, of course. Um, I think in 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 a way you can make um, that truth because the way he wins races, Remco, mm, not a lot of people are able to do that. Of course, Pogacar has done it in the past, win races with um, with great solos. Like I'm thinking uh, of this stage in the Tirreno uh, not so long ago, but but for yeah. The other riders in the peloton, you don't see a lot of riders doing that much, that many solos. So in that way, I think Valverde is right. You see Evenepoel win races in in uh, in a way that nobody does, and he does it with a regularity that nobody does, and that makes him so exceptional. So in that way, I understand Valverde, and probably he's also thinking about the, the values 
Evan um, Poole is is making the, the what he's producing. So um, a lot has been said about the, the Vuelta in Belgium by certain critics that the Vuelta is underrated because it, it didn't have the the main competition. It can have during, for instance, a Tour de France. But I think Valverde somehow knows, and and we all know that that the values that Evan Poole was pushing during that Vuelta are the same like in the Tour de France and the. the the surroundings are different, of course, in, in a Tour of Spain. You you have not that pressure like uh, like in the Tour of France, but I think the values that riders are pushing generally in a, a Tour of Italy or a Tour of Spain are usually about the same as they do in the Tour of France. So there, if Valverde thinks about those, those what's, he's right. Um, Renard, I remember a conversation with you uh, a, over a year ago uh, what then was a quite a difficult, well, a different stage of Remco Evenepoel's burgeoning career. Uh-huh. That was at the Giro d'Italia. It was his first Grand Tour. Yeah, and yeah. I think I remember speaking to you, particularly on the rest day in beautiful Assisi. We had a long chat about Remco and how, you know, about his presentation, his sort of self-presentation to the media and his media relations mm-hmm. um, at that point. And this sort of follows on from what we were saying about Jonas Vingegaard a minute ago. Um, during the Vuelta, we talked a lot about how he seemed like a different guy He seemed very comfortable in his own skin, perhaps understandably, because everything was going fantastically for him. But talk to us a little bit about your impressions Mm -hmm. of Remco and how they've changed over the last couple of years. I don't think his inner sides are more different than than last year, but the the outside of the appearance has changed a lot, and that is true. I mean, that, that Giro you're referring to, that was his very first Grand Tour. It came after the Lombardy crash. And he wasn't fully fit and prepared, nor physically, nor mentally, to to perform that during three weeks, and that that made him, yeah, very difficult to approach, and um, at times impossible. And there was a, some shouting, and the, the Belgian press was not amused at all. And I think he learned from that somehow, because somehow he must have. Um, captured that it's not good to have a relationship like that with the press so then we've seen an evolved Evenepoel in in the 2022 campaign but still it is it, it's it's at his rhythm he's determining mm. the pace and it's not that there's total access to Remco Evenepoel it's not like like in in Denmark I'd say but it's um it's also not easy to talk with him I I also um, tried last winter, this winter, to to talk with him uh, for for Pro Cycling magazine to to write a big piece about him, but it wasn't possible. So then I had to write a six-page opinion <laughs> about him. So that's how it goes. Then if if the writer doesn't talk, then we have to make the opinions and the pages that the people want to read about the champion. So that's a bit of a shame. And the theme, of course, also is 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 keeping him out of the spotlight. Now, that's not the right word. He's constantly in the spotlight in Belgium. It's, mm. I think it's all a different media landscape than, than in Denmark and in, in the rest of the world, basically, because cycling is, is yeah, I, I shouldn't tell you in Belgium, it is religion. It is much more important than soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I, was about, I thought you were about to say it's much more important than religion, which is probably also true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's not easy to get at as well. But once you you have access to to Evenepoel, then he's he's quite outspoken, and I think um, he likes talking. Doesn't yeah, he? he does. He, he really does. He's a very willing yeah. communicator, yeah. and he's. I mean, we talked about this, Brian. I think during the welter, didn't we? You know, you get guys who who enjoy. I mean, this is not being facetious. This is not um, criticizing or in, or making fun of him. But he kind of likes the sound of his own voice. 
in a good way. Well, let's um, hope so. Then he has a media career and prospect, so that uh, that could be something. And and I'm quite sure one day in in 15 years or so, he'll be in the media. I'm yeah. I, there's no doubt about that because he he's um, he's crazy about cycling. I mean, um, I remember um, I was commentating the Tour de France, and of course he was somewhere training. And then suddenly you you like get a message of Remco Evenepoel. So he's really following it. He's he's mm. nuts about the whole thing, and and no doubt about it that that the Tour de France is his uh, main goal and ultimate goal. But that's another topic, I guess. <laughs> that also used to be the case. I don't know if it still is with Wout Van Aert, didn't it? That he follows, he reads a lot, or certainly his family does. Am I right in thinking? What Evenepoel had was uh, he had a lot of time after his Lombardy crash and then a lot of riders, um, I don't know what they would do during uh, revalidation, but, but Evenepoel started, he took up reading and he said it in, in interviews early after the Lombardy crash and I think he, he's kept on that reading pace and he's reading a lot of books and he's working on, on mm on his own personality and um yeah I, I don't know what kind of books uh, books about mindfulness and stuff like that no, biographies okay. not Hemingway or no 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 it's I, those I think he mainly reads books that can uh, add something to his um uh yeah to his his personal yeah, development yeah, yeah exactly. I can see that in him yeah. I can see that yeah and that's um that's a thing that I'm I'm quite sure that from the Lombardy episode, he took that with him because he was forced to do that. Every every main athlete or, or um, uh, every world world class athlete—that's what I wanted to say—is mm. is basically by his own and his little surroundings and the people that that guide him through to a recovery period after a serious crash. And I think he th- there's nobody at, besides the road then to support you. And I think those books were in a way his supporters mm. and he took the knowledge of those books and he transferred that into a changed media personality that's my take on on the big difference we saw between the Remco Evenepoel from the Giro 2021 and the Remco mm. Evenepoel we saw during the Vuelta 22 and Worlds that's for me that's the big reason Brian as someone who's worked with riders at sort of every stage of their career including kind of prodigies I mean I think when you used to work with Andy Schleck I mean we as journalists we talk a lot about this stuff media relations we've just spent five minutes talking about Jonas Vingegaard and how he sort of um, bunkered himself away since the Tour de France I mean does any of this really matter that much and and why does it matter I think it matters from the rider's point of view uh from the rider's point of view well if I say, let me put it this way, if you're a Grand Tour rider, I think your ability to absorb the media uh, requests and, and, and find your own place in that is extremely important because you, if you're uncomfortable uh, doing it as a Grand Tour rider, it will, you, it'll, it'll cost you in your recovery. And, and one thing that was quite lucky with Andy in that connection was that he was, um, the first year he had the, when he had the white jersey, he had you know, he, he was expected to do well in the general classification, but there was no pressure. But he still had to do the mix zone every day. He still had to go through all the drills. And I, I think that was like um, the perfect way to shoehorn his self-perception into a good relationship with the media. So it wasn't very confrontational. You know, everyone liked him. He relaxed during it. Uh, doing it. And, and if, you, if you contrast that to, say, Kettle Evans, 
who basically wanted to get the hell out of there uh, the minute he the first question was over and, and I think that that the stress that you take on uh, yourself if you if you have that approach I think it'll cost in your recovery and and I think so I think it's quite important that you I always say to the riders the, the most relaxing thing is being yourself you know if you have to say put on a facade if you have to reenact something that's not really you it, it's it's not healthy for your your recovery so and it, everyone's different that way but i think if you're a more and i'm happy to hear that that self-development is is uh, in the pipeline for for remco but I, joking aside it is quite important that you find uh, a way to do it that doesn't interfere with your ability to be competitive I mean, Roglic has been a, a fantastic example of that. He's found a way, he's found a sweet spot. As someone who originally was was pretty uncomfortable in those situations, there was a moment where it clicked for him and he realised that um, he could he could almost caricature himself and it would amuse people and it would diffuse a lot of the tension in mix zones and in press conferences and so on and so forth. I mean, I've talked quite a bit as well about the, the particularities of certain countries and certain you know media cultures that reign in those countries I mean you talk about Andy Schleck Brian I think there's there's a kind of a, a small country phenomenon I know Belgium is quite a small country but it's not a small country in Belgian terms but with Slovenia and um, we've seen it and with Luxembourg the countries are so small and their kind of cycling heritage relatively is so um, small or you might say underdeveloped that, that there's a there's a support to the media generally that which possibly you don't get in in places where there are multiple big stars or you know there are multiple points of comparison with the past I mean I think that you know the, the Slovenian media has has always kind of seemed to be a force for good and and then they've been very much behind Pogacar and Roglic and maybe the Luxembourg media was as well and that's maybe different in Belgium well, in Belgium, um, the media are always polarizing somehow. Um, that's been the tradition. If you if, if you even if you go back to the Eddie Merckx era, we will not compare Remco Evenepoel with Eddie Merckx. Let that be clear. But I, I was referring to the the media during the Eddie Merckx era. Um, even then, there was there was also an anti Merckx resentment in in the media, and I, I think I, I wouldn't call it. Um, the same nowadays but uh, there's always been pro and contra and because there's so much publication about cycling and so much attention to cycling um, there's almost not a day that goes by without a, a Remco Evenepoel uh, report somewhere even if he does, he hasn't said anything at all but there's somewhere a little thingy and then Evenepoel will be in the headlines of, of some website or newspaper or, or even Sporza, <laughs> of course, especially Sporza. Um, so that's how it goes in, in Belgium. Um, but what you said, particularly on, on the different cultures, um, I, I can acknowledge that. Uh, and I think it plays a role, for sure. But also I think it, it has to do with, with the characters that are playing their, their role. Then, like, for instance, Roglic, um, there's always a language barrier. And that's mm. that also plays a role. And... Um, Pogacar in the beginning um, I'd say he wasn't really at ease with everything but then he really very, uh, he adapted unbelievably fast and I think that's one of the main things we see at, at with those main uh, with those world class riders most of them have the ability to, to adapt quite quickly with, mm. with the media um, questions and the whole mumbo jumbo around because it is something that is around the sport it's it's not part of the sport in in a certain way but i i recommend any cyclist 
to see it as a part of their sport because because it creates market value. If they're good at media stuff, they will earn more money in the long run. So that's how they have to take a look at it. If if we're good at this, we're gonna make more money. I'm not saying cycling is all about money, but it's if it, you're paying six if you're paying sixty percent tax, yeah, is it really worth sixty eight, Daniel. Sixty eight. Yeah, exactly. Well, It'll make you life in in Denmark more more, more easy. Expensive. So uh, <laughs> we can all go and live in Denmark. <laughs> so um I think it it is an important part of, of um, the approach of, of world-class riders to the sport. And the fact that cycling has that approachness possibility made it different from a lot of sports. And that's why, that's one of the main reasons as a reporter I fell in love with cycling. Because I, I could have turned out to be a football reporter and it was somewhere in the 90s I was on that, that duality. I had to, mm. to choose like, am I going to go to football? which had more certainties in the long run, or will I go for cycling? And the openness of cycling was what seduced me. So, and I'm still in it, and that openness is still there, but it's getting a little bit less lately. And that's something um, I'm not, yeah, I don't like to see that happen because in my opinion, if you limit access to riders, then you, um, you make the gap between the riders and the public bigger. Mm. That's something we don't want to see. I mean, Renard, when we were planning the episode this week, um, you sort of jokingly referred to the fact we'd probably be talking about this new golden age for Belgian cycling. I just wanted to ask you as well. I mean, you must have started your career at a, at a time, just from memory, the late 90s um, and certainly the early 2000s, particularly on the stage race front, it was pretty bare as far as Belgium was concerned. I mean, I remember, you know, guys like Kurt van der Valve, and no disrespect to him, but he was sort of talked up as and uh, Mario Arts, people like this were, were talked up as the closest thing Belgium had to a Grand Tour contender. Here we are in 2022. Finally, you've got a Grand Tour winner for the first time since 1978. Um, is, is there a sense now, particularly with Van Aert as well and other very strong Belgian classics riders. Is there a sense that you are entering a golden age? I'm quite sure. You said I was joking about that. I was dead serious, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, funny you're mentioning Kurt van der Wauer. You know he's the new uh, sports manager from Lotto Soudal, from Lotto Destiny from okay, next year. Okay. So he's he's back. So, okay, that's another circle going around. But um, Van Aert, Evenepoel, uh, Philipsen, um, Steuven, and, and the list goes on with youngsters. Arno de Lee. <laughs> Arno de Lee. Let's not mm. forget about Arno de Lee. Um, I mean, yeah. This feels like like a revival of the 70s and the golden age of Belgian cycling. I'm, I'm quite sure it, just by looking at the numbers. I mean, Belgium is, is um, all over the place. And when I started back, like you said, uh, late 90s, early uh, this millennium, we were nowhere in the Grand Tours. Mm. Um, it was already a miracle when somebody won a, won a stage. And, and now, yeah, uh, with Evenepoel, we're in for... <laughs> Uh, another story and then Belgians keep winning stages with a lot of different riders I only have to rethink about the the Giro where in Belgium the the main uh, story was we won't go there we will go there and we will win nothing and then Dries de Bond came up and, and Thomas de Gent won another stage and and it mm. keeps continuing continuing like that race after race race after race and then we keep winning and we win the big stuff. Um, Evenepoel wins, I don't have to tell you all his victories, he wins monuments, he wins um, Grand Tours, Van Aert is doing his thing with the green jersey. It, it's like 
Yeah, Valhalla for a Belgian cycling reporter, and and I've never known that that sentiment because I, I was in it. I was in the sport for the sport, and I didn't expect that the sport could turn back to the feeling like it mm. probably was in the seventies, but it has now, and that is really, yeah, that that's really a, it's a nice era to be a cycling reporter in Belgium. And I guess that's reflected. I mean. Just in in the streets, in the among the common people. But that said, I mean, I've had experiences before in Belgium where I've heard people, overheard people talking about cycling in the most incongruous settings. The the types of the sort of demographics that you would never expect to be, you know, debating the I don't know the um, the 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 tour of West Flanders the previous day and you kind of hear them. So that's always been there, very much kind of ingrained in the collective popular psyche but i guess that's even more pronounced now i guess um you know everyone um almost without exceptions is aware of what is going on in the big races in cycling yeah that's true and and cycling in belgium is something that um transcends every social class from from yeah from people that are unemployed from to the prime minister all everything mm. all the people in between everybody has an opinion on cycling and and breathe cycling and everybody is aware that something is happening and and you you can you can sense that in in the country and that's um that's a nice feeling and if you're a cycling reporter yeah then then it's really grateful and it's it's a privilege to be around this time and to cover races and I'm, I'm really happy that I can uh, can experience this in the first row, and um, I'm very really curious to see how it's going to evolve in, over the next couple of years, because um, yeah, it's not at all done yet, and it it seems like it's only um, the prelude of of even bigger things to come, yeah, and that's mm. that's a really nice feeling. Okay, chaps. Well, big intake of breath now. Um, we're going to talk about cyclocross um brian is gonna be the first to talk about cyclocross because i'm intrigued to hear whether he shares i'm not going to call it a an aversion or an allergy because um i am i'm i'm cyclo curious but I'm, I'm not a devoted follower but i'm curious to know whether brian i got is a devoted follower of cyclocross mm. where to where to start where does that well <laughs> should we just go straight no, back I'm, to actually, I'm gonna surprise you on this one because before uh, cyclocross was a was a big thing in in mainstream cycling i was actually quite into it way back in the days when denmark had the best cyclocross rider in the world uh, namely henry journeys who was a multiple uh, world champion, and you probably don't even know who he is. Uh, he was huge. Uh, Renard probably knows who he was. Um, I think at this point, uh, I have to go into the late part of the cyclocross season, probably around the world championships, when my when I miss watching cycling at a high level so much that I, I mean, I'm not going to like... Um, go into the trap i'm not gonna alienate you know, any I'm, more I'm, Belgians. i would never watch a six day you know i, I think that's uh, you know I, 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 I then i'd rather watch professional wrestling or something like that you know it's just uh but i would uh i usually watch the world championships because it you know it's it's first of all it's fantastically produced it's amazing uh, amazingly well done the tv production is is you can really get a sense of what's going on in the bike race and now that it's inhabited by some of the the best you know, riders in the world who also do road 
it's 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 hard not to have some kind of uh, attraction to it. But I, I, the the first four or five, I don't know how many World Cups there are. They happen without me even noticing it, and then later on, when um, when I really want to watch cycling so bad, and I can't wait until the the hit folk uh, or the tour down under for that matter, then then I, I you know I, I cave in, I I, I let go, and then I actually I would, I would watch probably the last fifteen minutes. Well, Brian and Renard, there are a lot of devoted followers of this kind of subsection. I'm not going to call it a sect or cult um, within professional cycling, but there are a lot of followers. Um, and it, it should be, it is our duty to also um, inform and entertain them over the winter. Um, in that light, we thought Renard could give us, well, he could give us a bit of a briefing on the 2022 to 2023 cyclocross season that will be and has already been, in fact. Um, Renard, can you, can you start off by just telling us what has happened so far because I know we've got quite a big race at the weekend European Championships but but the season is already underway just to sum up some of the highlights um, both men's and women's if you can if you want to summarise it in two names then it's quite easy um, women's Fem van Empel men's Eli Iserbiet those are the two main characters up until now uh, but of course Iserbiet hasn't won European Championships, but he's won uh, four World Cups in a row. And Van Empel has won um, also four World Cups in a row. So those are the World Cups Brian has missed. Yeah, so thank maybe you. he knows now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think for the rest, um, yeah, Lucinda Brandt, she broke her, her wrist in uh, the World Cup in Tabor, the European champion. And she's going to uh, try to defend um yeah her title so um and she will do that because it, it looked like she was out for a couple of weeks but um they're gonna try and, and today is, is wednesday yeah in 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 a couple of days they'll probably give her green light to to compete at the, the next euros so brand will then be up against the youth in uh, women's cyclocross because there are three young dutch ladies um, who are really up and running like uh, Van van Empel is, is the, the main character for the moment she's really flying and, and, and um, winning races even if she isn't at 100% but tactically she's also really um, cooked <laughs> it's maybe a strange expression but she knows how things um, work in a, in a final round then you have Shirin van Androoy and um, the third one um, is uh, I, I have to think about her name now um, we have Van Androoy, Van Empel. Uh, I'm missing the third one, which is a disgrace, of course, with all those names early morning. <laughs> but I'll, I'll get to it in, in, a, in a short moment. As for the men's races, we've seen battles between Iserbit, who's really doing well. Um, he lost one World Cup, though, against um, Lauren Swick, who won his first World Cup ever. And then there's Michael Van Turenot also playing a, a, an important role in, in cyclocross right now. But as I mentioned the names, I, I can understand why Brian is, is not hooked for the moment. I mean, that is the problem with, with cyclocross. Cyclocross, a lot of people now these days live in the, um, yeah, in the reasoning that cyclocross only begins when the likes of, of Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert or, or Tom Pitcock enter into the game, which is going to happen soon. Which they will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that they generally appear sort of after Christmas increasingly, don't they? Or around about the very busy Christmas period. Am I right? A bit earlier, usually. So um, <laughs> there's been talk about Van Aert starting early December. Um, Van der Poel 
maybe a bit earlier. Uh, Pitcock, no no news around him, but he'll he'll show up somewhere. So uh, it's it's that's a bit of the uh, it's part of the problem of cyclocross right now. I think worldwide the the, the fact that the, the best riders and we have to call them like that, even if if uh, Ailey and Michael they won't like it if I say it like that. But but for the moment. Um, yeah, if when Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel and, and Pitcock return to the game, then it's a different ball game, and that's that's part of the problem. Cyclocross is is uh, is confronted with because um, I'm I'm quite sure that cyclocross is the is one of the ultimate cycling disciplines as a TV format. Um, I've I've been involved in in the creation of that TV format over the years in Belgium. I, I, I still remember the times when there were only like four or five or six races maximum in a year broadcasted live. And we've, we've ended up now with 30 plus nearing 40 a season, which is an amazing evolution over the time. And who has created that? Belgian TV. So if you would have a same story worldwide, like, like um, broadcasters worldwide, giving that much attention to cyclocross, then it could become the same story worldwide. But it hasn't up until now because there's a problem with the TV rights and, and as long as that problem continues, cyclocross will remain where it is now. And 10 years ago, right after the Worlds in Louisville 2013, I thought, okay, now is the moment. Now they can make a jump, but they didn't. And um, and that's it's a shame because it has everything in, in one hour. It's one hour really condensed uh, it, it, it has um, the action it has the drama it has the actors actors in in a good way i mean uh, really the, the the characters oscar winning actors and it has the good the bad and the ugly especially in the era of nace and de Klerk and and lars bohm and stibar so th that's what you need to in order to have um a cyclocross world that really is captivating more than just belgium and holland and for the moment we don't have that situation Renard, um, so when you did try to introduce me to the delights of cyclocross a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, I went to, what was it, Skeldercross? Skelder yeah, Ant Antwerp could um, be, yeah, yeah. Antwerp, yeah. We talked then quite a bit about how already Van der Poel and Van Art dependent the whole scene was. And we were talking also in terms of the organisers themselves and the gate receipts and how everything really hinged on them. And um, this is probably the first of a series of ill-informed and blasphemous questions that I'm going to ask. But is there, is there a sense, is it fair to say that, that there was a window of opportunity um, in terms of Van Art and Van der Poel being these kind of crossover stars that were piquing the interest of road fans, hardcore road fans, because they're also active on the road. Um, they are now moving into, a, or have moved into phases of their career where they're doing less cyclocross. They're still doing a bit, but they're doing less. Is there a sense that cyclocross has, has lost a bit of an opportunity um, and those sort of golden three or four years are now, well, they're now fading over the horizon and, and we're now back to a, a very kind of Belgian... Mm sport with Belgian stars and a more sort of parochial affair, which, uh, you know, is going to generate less money and less interest. But an opportunity, a window of opportunity, I would call. Um, but that window of opportunity might have shut up now, but there's another window of opportunity opening up, if you ask me, because I see what's happening with the World Cup and I like that. And I think that World Cup over time might be a game changer if broadcasters step up and um 
you like it because it's becoming more international yeah. there are events yeah. now like dublin yeah. this yeah. year and i and think yeah. that that can be a game changer because i know of plans of going to new york and stuff like that and and if you go with a with a discipline like cyclocross to new york it doesn't have to be central park but only the the if you have the connection a big apple with cyclocross then you it, it creates a different uh, atmosphere if you ask me I have nothing against Fayetteville and uh, and Waterloo I mean huge respect for all the sponsors and organizers involved there they're doing a hell of a job in, in difficult conditions but what cyclocross really needs overseas is, is like uh, Cross Vegas was, was the very first American World Cup and if you connect Las Vegas with cyclocross that was a winner it was a born winner and was also a born winner because of Interbike with the connection at, uh, with the bike um uh, the bike uh, gathering there so um we have to get back to that situation somehow and i think location there is is key and if you can get to new york with the cyclocross world uh, world cup if you can get to london it was in the making but then dublin dublin is a really good alternative i'd say maybe even better but <laughs> i'd love to go to to london as well um and i think that's only the beginning and and um the next thing that will have to happen then is that um, in all those World Cups, that, that um, the big three, as I call them, they need to have contracts for a lot of those races, not a couple of them. And the big three, the names can change over the years. I, as, as we speak now, it's, it's the reigning world champion uh, Pitcock, it's, uh, it's Mathieu and, and Wout, but those names can change over the years. It will just depend on development of sport. And Actually, it was Puck Pietersen I was looking for. I, I should mention her, the uh, under-23 Dutch, Dutch rider that also is playing uh, big guns right now. So um, I think one of the, the things that I, uh, coming from what you just said, sorry for interrupting, Renat, is that a model for not doing it is what mountain bike has done because they've completely failed to create a competitive narrative and it's it's becoming more and more niche it's like even if let's say if there was a um, mountain bike world cup you'd, you'd struggle even finding the results on the major news outlets and i think the cyclocross has already surpassed mountain bike by lengths even if it, it should be it, you know it has mountain bike has such a long story and it the origins go go further back to a certain degree, but I think more more obvious sort of sex appeal. Yeah, exactly. It? And then also you you saw the same movement of the top tier athletes, or at least some of them moving into road cycling. There was a you know similar situation that there is to to cyclocross now. But I just think the uh, mountain bike has withered uh, completely in, in the in the light of of the you know emerging interest for for cyclocross. So I think that's. That's that's quite interesting. It's not going to do mountain bike any good. That cyclocross has, has moved so fast uh, from that perspective, at least. Renard, can I just ask you a couple more naive questions, particularly on the women's side? And um, we've got this strange phenomenon, and has been this strange phenomenon in women's cyclocross, where Belgium does not dominate. Um, on the contrary, uh, the the Netherlands dominates. But three or four years ago, when I did go to a cyclocross race, the races were being dominated by one individual, and she was Belgian. Uh, her name was Sanna Kant. What has happened to Sanna Kant, uh, I wanted to ask you, first of all, because she is no longer in that top bracket of female riders mm. that you mentioned. I think she's just getting older, and it's it's not uh, rocket science. And we also see already uh, that, that the, the, the Dutch changing of the guard is going on so it's really happening fast i mean last year we were talking about uh, betsema 
um, Alvarado, world champion, a couple of years ago. Um, Brandt, of course, is still there. She was injured, okay. But then if you see the, the, the three youngsters now uh, surging into the sport, and then it, it illustrates how fast things can change. And I think uh, Sanna Kant has been at the top of her game really a long time. In Belgium, she still is, but since Belgium is not world class for the moment it doesn't make any difference for for the podium so i think sana she had the a decent road season but as a, as a cyclocross rider she's over her limit and that's no no big news to to talk about that and there's one thing we have to take in um in reserve speaking about sana Kant. as soon as there's mud into the game she will step up and get closer to the dutch world uh, world class riders because she's really um in, into the mud and uh, that gives her an advantage and those youngsters from, from Holland they're all really good on, on hard surfaces and on fast races so uh, we haven't seen the last of Sanekan but I suspect she'll never be world champion again that's yeah. she's it's the mud it's the mud that I don't like aesthetically it offends me that's my big problem with cyclocross um, just another question on on women's cyclocross um, obviously we had a pretty high profile announcement a couple of weeks ago with um, Ineos announcing that they'd signed Pauline Ferrand Prévost um, who is a multidisciplinary well, world champion um, and a, a very big name, high profile um, f- in in lots of those disciplines. Um, well, what did you make of that? And is that the kind of move that, again, will sort of take cycle across and its visibility into a different dimension to, to new audiences? Well, of course, I'm, I'm a big fan of, her, of uh, PFP because, uh, because of her results and... Um, um, I'm not sure about that because um, I think, and I, I'm coming back to an earlier point I made, I think the TV situation is what's going to determine the the, the future of the sport. And, but it adds, of course, when, when the main characters are, are multidisciplinary uh, gifted. And I think PFP in that way is like, for the moment, uh, one of the ultimate women's cycling champions. And <clears throat> I think any discipline will um, will have an advantage if she shows up so if you have characters like that it adds to the sport and it, as it, as it adds that the the, three, the big three come into the men's races and i think pfp can have the same effect and the thing that cyclocross is is struggling a lot with is that the um the international variety of riders is is too small we need to get get away from belgium and holland i mean nothing against my own riders and and the, the dutch riders of course but we need to need um you need to have danish favorites we need to need we need swiss stars we need <clears throat> fresh italians we need um we need the whole world we need americans especially americans um yeah that's what what sports is is uh, is all about an international environment and then you can come back to another precious point uh, the olympic status isn't there as soon as you would make cyclocross into an Olympic discipline, things would change rapidly because then the funding would change into the sport and a lot of international national cycling federations would put budget into the sport and they would regard it as a different um, discipline, as a step-up discipline for road cycling, of course, but as a discipline as its own, like mountain bike is. Mountain bike has the Olympic status and it's benefited a lot from that. Without the Olympic status, I think mountain bike would have disappeared by now. But it's Same still, with BMX. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
there you have it. I think um, a, a couple of cards are there on the table, but somebody has to pull them and play them. TV, Olympic status, um, the stars, of course, are one thing, but I think the stars are easily to create once you pull out the other two cards. I think the... Um if you look at it from a financial perspective, there's, the, there's a huge potential also because as we've seen in road cycling, the, the cycling uh, manufacturers, the, the, you know, the companies that produce bikes, a very part, a big part of the funding of, of, of the teams now, and they have huge uh, incentive in terms of getting more people to buy gravel bikes or cyclocross bikes. So they're going to push hard for it, uh, you know, when you see, for instance, what EF Education have done with, you know, the, the gravel section, which is almost a, a separate entity within the team. And you see the big uh, bike manufacturers, they're pushing to get some of the, um, the road uh, stars into doing more of this, these things. So I think that if you see that development continuing with the bike manufacturers wanting to, you know, develop a bigger audience, which means for them a bigger market. I think we'll potentially see more of the higher profiled road riders doing a little bit of cyclocross more and more. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Our long-term partners, Science in Sport, are the perfect supporters for my ride, the Tour de Cos. Back-to-back days of cycling requires a consistent fueling effort, and Science in Sport kept us topped up from start to finish. Our bidons were full to the brim with beta fuel, and we had the energy bakes and energy gels for emergencies stuffed in our back pockets as we rode. You can listen to the whole Tour de Cost series, which is going out on the free feed now. And if you want to get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com, use the discount code SISCP25. Well, chaps, no more cyclocross in this final part. A um, bit of a sigh of relief from from me, although um, very, it was very illuminating there to hear um, about the season we've got in store. I mean, I've just come to the conclusion it's a bit like kind of mayonnaise, techno music, camping holidays. I mean, these are things that I just am never going to get on with. Um, Mud is the magic, against, Daniel. Mud is the magic. Nothing against people who... Um, who are very passionate about cyclocross. Um, chaps, we're going to talk a little bit and we're going to look back um, on some of our personal highlights of 2022 in this part, but more from a sort of professional point of view. And I was keen to quiz Renart a little bit about a change, Renart, that you, you sort of undertook in your professional life in 2022 um you've worked for years as i said at the start of the show as a sort of well pre-race reporter in race reporter you've done some commentary as well but you did more commentary um for sports uh, in 2022 didn't you you became the main commentator particularly for the tour de france and some other races yes yeah, true um colleague um was retired um michael weitz yeah he retired and yeah, then yeah, the gap opened and they appointed me to the uh, the stage races and the Grand Tours, which of course is, is a very nice time to step in. And uh, so I had the uh, opportunity to, to leave the moto in the Tour de France, to leave the mixed zone in the Tour de France, to get into the, the commentary position. And I did that for Tour and Vuelta and all the other stage races we're broadcasting at Sporta. Yeah. 
Now, Michael Weiss was a bit of a, well, not a bit of a, an institution, a big institution in Belgian sports broadcasting. And I know, you know, without getting into detail about it, there was a lot of, as there always is about these things on social media, there was a lot of debate about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing that he was going. Um, but what I do know, what I can well imagine, is that there was quite a lot of pressure on you in that situation i mean how did you how did you feel about it how nervous were you particularly mm. before something like the tour de france and yeah knowing the reaction there would be yeah, yeah i understand what you mean um i was i was not so nervous since since i just did my thing like i i used to do during the all those tours of italy i covered in the past so um the only thing that was new was kind of the overexposure you're uh, you're getting during the Tour de France, and yeah, that was different compared to the tours of Italy I did in the past. But overexposure I'm, in terms of well, the audience and also airtime. I mean, the, the yeah. fact that stages yeah. now are broadcast from end to end. Yeah, that's true. It it is it is um it is an Ironman you're doing there as a commentator for sure, uh, especially since we're in Belgium not working with uh, with two duos of, of commentators. We just right. uh, have to do the whole broadcast with with a duo. And um, in that sense, it was um, a lesson in, in being humble about broadcasting because it's uh, yeah, challenging if you have to, to be on air for six, six hours plus. Um, but I've also in the past, I had a couple of, of uh, long Giro broadcasts, so it wasn't completely new to me. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, and from a Belgian point of view, yeah, it was a dream Tour de France. It started off with the yellow with, with uh, Lampard uh, immediately pushing mm. the pedals into Copenhagen <laughs> uh, and then it, it just didn't stop so um, it, was, it came very very how must I say natural for me to, to commentate the Tour of France and I was not insecure I just had to adjust a bit to um, the new conditions because we were commentating from a studio in Brussels which which I wasn't used to do in the past and in the Giro mm. we always went on site and that makes a lot of difference you, because you then you have natural adrenaline production and that adrenaline production is just less when you're in a studio away from the action that's yeah, yeah, that's how it goes Brian it was a move that you made a few years ago into TV commentary on Tour de France were you nervous I can't imagine anything phasing you that much, but we, we yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, it's 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 completely different uh, commentating the tour to anything else, because the amount of people watching the tour is is you can't really compare it. It's it's the whole nation watching when it's the tour, and the one thing is that uh, everyone thinks it's easy to do TV. Everyone thinks well, you just sit down and 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 watch and talk about it, but uh, and ideally that should be the situation, but. It, it really divides people's uh, opinions if you're doing a good job or not. And if you're making even the tiniest mistake, a lot of people will, will have an opinion about uh, you as a person if you, if you, make, if you make mistakes. And, and, um, but I, I found it after, you know, I did a few races before the tour and I was very happy with the constellation. It was me and, and, and Chris Anker um, and, 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 and Rasmus. And then I, I did a part of the, the later broadcast as well. So I was uh, coming back to what I said to Andy, the, the easiest thing if you have to do something is to try and, and be yourself because it gets tiring uh, being, you know, acting or pretending it gets tiring after a while. So uh, if you just try to be yourself and be extremely well prepared, that was that was my key to it. And, and because I had a lot of the culture parts, I could prepare my way out of 
making too many mistakes, you know, in terms of what was along the road or the analytics of of the peloton. So I think preparation was a, was a big element to avoid being too nervous. You know, when I asked you both there how nervous you were and, you know, how you sort of um dealt with the reaction i mean i was referring really i suppose you guess i was referring partly to you know this big change that's been over the last 10 years or so which is our exposure to our audience in terms of particularly social media i mean renard i remember at the Giro this year you and i had a conversation over dinner one night um about the, the how expectations have um, been raised for what commentators and pundits provide i remember talking with you about you know it used to be seen as a as a as an amazing admirable thing if a commentator knew that a rider had you know done a certain race five years ago um and now suddenly there's an expectation that you pronounce every name right that you know someone's or that you can certainly um, reel off someone's palmares you know at the at the drop of a hat and and it is difficult sometimes to I well I can imagine certainly as a commentator I mean I'm only exposed to a small part of it but um, to be exposed to a lot of the reactions particularly as I said in Belgium Renat when everyone knows so much and you're following someone who has accompanied people through broadcast for I think in Michael Weitz's case decades I mean how did you build did you build any sort of firewall for yourself I mean literal and figurative or did you look at social media. I did look at social media, but I I didn't look as often I, as I used to do because um, you have to be self-protective in a way because, like Brian said, um, we all make mistakes and mistakes are inevitable, especially in, in the duration the broadcasts take these days. And, and as soon as we make a mistake, for sure, it'll be on Twitter. <laughs> the, the mistake will be earlier on Twitter than you pronounce it so to speak mm. and, and um, yeah I don't mind making mistakes of course you try to avoid them but I'm aware of the fact that the perfect broadcast doesn't exist and uh, yeah I mean I mean, also in order to broadcast well you need to feel free and you need yeah. to feel free yeah. in your expression and I think that's probably the most difficult aspect of the social media phenomenon and those reactions that you're exposed to that sort of second by second censor in in the back of your head am i saying this right am i getting this right and and that can be quite constraining can't it that's true but but with um yeah with the years going on i'm i'm yeah i'm using social media differently than i i, I used mm. in the beginning of the day so I, I tend to see it as an extra channel and um yeah, after all, it is what it is. And, and I've done broadcasts without even giving a glimpse or getting any social media input at all. And, and sometimes it's even liberating to do that. So I'd recommend that to any <laughs> debuting commentator. Don't uh, don't think about the social media. Do your thing and uh, uh, yeah, be confident about what you do. It's it's a bit like being on a bike, I guess. I mean, you start doing interviews, then some at some point they... They throw you on a motorbike and then later on they put you in a commentary cabin and it's all phases you're going through. Mm. And um, the more phases or the more aspects from the job or the world you're evolving, you you understand and you acknowledge and you notice that the easier it becomes to, to be a commentator. Mm. So that's why in my position, Brian was mentioning his colleagues, uh, the late Chris Anker, uh, and and the other guys, uh, I have the the privilege of being b besides Jose de Cauer, who is like a cycling encyclopedia, and the guy has literally 
swam through every cycling water that exists. He's been a super domestic of Henny Kuiper. He's been the team leader from uh, Greg Lamont at the infamous, the infamous, no, the legendary Tour de France 89. Um, he's become world champion with Tom Bonin as a, as a national coach. He's been uh, director sportif. I mean, he's done it. He's done everything. So if you have a guy like that besides you, then commentary is quite easy because you know whatever I'm gonna say, Jose uh, is going mm. to 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 head the assistant into a goal, and that's that's really rewarding. And as soon as you're a good duo, then commentary is fun. And I always keep telling myself and to other people, and Jose, as long as we are having fun, the viewers will have fun. I guess I hope mm. so. And that's mainly the reaction I got after my first full Tour de France as a commentator. So I'm really looking forward to to the next one already. Uh, and and when the uh, the parkour, the racetrack came out, then I already started thinking about this and that and those stories. Mm. And I re I started I'm, I'm I started hoarding right away, <laughs> hoarding stories. That's what you do along the season in order to to keep the the broadcast yeah. for for hours uh, interesting enough. Yeah. Well, Renard, since you brought it up, I was going to ask, uh, we were going to talk a bit more about personal highlights of 2022, but you brought up the Tour de France 2023, which was unveiled last week. Um, neither of you chaps was on the podcast last week. So let's um, let's spend the last couple of minutes just discussing what you made of the Tour de France route, particularly Brian. I mean, we talked about Vingegaard earlier, Vingegaard not being at the presentation, but as far as his prospects for 2023 go, I mean, what, what did you think? He'll have to be at least the level that he was this year, because I think it's a parkour that slightly favors uh, Pogacar. And also we've seen that uh, Pogacar has strengthened his team significantly um, coming into next year. Uh, from, you think? You think they've, they've strengthened I mean, it, 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 I, For me, it, it depends on how they're going to do the lineup. I mean, if they, if they bring uh, Adam Yates, if they think about maybe bringing... Ayuso, I don't know. I mean, they could. I think they have within their existing roster. They have the possibility to have a stronger team than they had this year. Uh, uh, Covid nineteen also conditioned their possibility to to you know to give him a, a solid backing. That was that was another thing. But I, it's a very interesting parkour, and I think the initial reaction. I I don't think is at least in Denmark didn't really grasp how radical it is and how difficult and relentlessly hard it is. Uh, as um, I think from a rider's perspective because you can't be strong in a way that, that you would do traditionally in a, in a tour and then expect to be good in the last week this, this the Tour de France we've had presented I think you need to be extremely aware of how you where, where you really use your energy because there is no hiding in, in, in really any of those three weeks because it starts out hard and I think the, the treacherous nature of the last week is a little bit more interesting because there isn't an, an obvious I mean it's a very hard stage in the Alps but that last uh, climbing stage which is the second last stage I think can be very very interesting and if we go into the last hard stages of the tour with a very close margin I, I think we could have a very interesting race and one that in my opinion slightly favors uh, Pugaccia's style of, of racing yeah, I would agree with that. I was quite struck by how negative some of the reactions were. I think there is still a bit of a default setting in some people to look for the blockbuster legendary 2,500 meter yeah. climbs like yeah. the Galibier. I think that's a mistake. I don't think that, that, and, I don't think that necessarily yeah. gives us a, a, a better racing. And I, I, and I think it's a myth that a harder parkour 
in itself gives better racing. I think this is also a, yeah. a, a, a I mean, it also depends on who we're going to see. I doubt we're going to see Remco, Renard, Renovo, that, and I doubt that we'll see uh, a Banal as competitive as we saw him a few years ago. But um, I think it's going to be a, a rematch. There has a huge potential to be a rematch between Wenger and Pogaccia, and, and I, th I think it, the Baku, at least, anything else can change, of course slightly favors uh, Pogaccia and if it favors Pogaccia there should be interesting racing uh, regardless yeah uh, I agree on that and as as you what you said about Van Aert I follow you on that one because there's Glasgow lurking around the corner and having the world so close after the Tour de France will will change the approach from a, by a lot of riders uh, to that Tour de France uh, because they uh, they will think about worlds and uh, having worlds so close after um, the big one will will change things, and I think Van Aert is the kind of rider that um, divides his career with. Uh, okay, been there, done that, um, won't do that again. Check uh, green jersey, okay. But I don't think he'll be dreaming is not the word, but he'll be thinking about the green jersey. It'll be a side goal because he's had green, and so he'll be thinking about the rainbow jersey, which is more important for the outcome of his career. Um, I do think um, that it will be an interesting Tour de France, especially with uh, with the bunch we're living uh, in this cycling era. Uh, I don't think Remco Evenepoel will be at the start, um, not only because of the time trialing being so so uh, yeah, futile. <laughs> Twenty-two kilometers uh, is really nothing. Not even. A, I mean, it struck me the other day that that teams might not even need to take time trial bikes to the Tour de France. Yeah. That's true. That's true. If, mm. with, with all that uphill uh, in in the twenty two kilometers is not even necessary, I think. And and yeah, if if they do, then they will have to change bikes after uh, uh, a very short time already. So um, no, I see Remco in in the in the Tour of Italy like a lot of uh, people do. Oh, not only because of the time trialing, but because of the timing in his career. And I think the team the team has uh, a very big transfer market coming up next winter not this winter but next winter a lot of riders are out of contract at, at uh, the team of Lefebvre and then they will build that big armada around uh, Evenepoel not saying that the guys are already there not good no but he, he needs a stronger team in yeah, order to go fully competitive to the Tour de France and I, I don't think from what I've heard he's thrilled with the transfer market they've had this year Ramco, is that's, it? I think he no, that's true. It is, would have liked some more, but it's, there wasn't simply enough room, I guess, to um, and enough movement on the market as well. And uh, I'm not sure about all the contracts ending 2023, but I'm, I'm quite sure that there'll be some opportunities. And um, Lefebvre also having the new sponsor uh, will create financial possibilities, in my opinion. There's always the check back up with Bacala, who knows what he's going to do. He's been there for ages now and he's very important behind the scenes. So I think the right thing for uh, Evenepoel is to, to aim at that Tour of Italy. But the, the, the big uh, mistake in Belgium and maybe even worldwide, that will be that, that he will be the main favourite. In my opinion, he's not. Um, maybe he will be for the bookies, but I think Evenepoel is still at a stage in his career where he doesn't have to win the Tour of Italy. He didn't have to win the Tour of Spain as well. But it, as it turned out, he won it, and in an astonishing way. But I think 
he's still in, in a growing phase of his career. We haven't seen the best even Pool yet. And if, if for some reason or a race scenario, he wouldn't win the Tour of Italy and he ends up third or second or fifth or sixth, it can be a good result. And we shouldn't measure him by the standards he's already reached by now. Because as Rathevere said in many interviews, he's ahead of schedule, years ahead. I'm not sure he can keep up that pace of progression he did up until now. He's done amazingly. I'm, I'm not uh, being the lawyer of, of Remco Evenepoel. I'm just trying to be um, an observer. And as I see it, he's, he's skipped a, a couple of steps. He's also lost a couple of steps with the Lombardy crash. Uh, that, that cost him a normal year for sure. But what he did in 2022 shouldn't be the norm. I mean, that was exceptional. And as he said himself, right after his world title, um, I had the privilege of, of doing the first interview in his mother language, uh, not so long after his world title. And one of the first things he said, and I, I keep that it's in my head somewhere, he said like, it's never gonna be possible to produce another year like this. And we should acknowledge him with that quote because it was exceptional and the um, the puzzle, the puzzle, that's not the word, the pieces of, of the of the puzzle, they, they fitted together uh, with, with uh, the Roglic story in that Vuelta, uh, the competition, the, the race course and all the other stuff. Uh, so it's not going to be like that every year. Unquote. But isn't the, isn't the challenge then to, to from the public perception or his position in the public domain in Belgium that they, they will have to somehow accept that, uh, that type of development? And, and I don't really think they have the tradition to do that and I'm not saying that it's not possible because you know what we saw with Vandenbroeke and what we've seen before is that the, the there's quite an impatience uh, once you once you hit those uh, targets quite early, you know, and then I think the the possibility for him being frustrated about people asking him, "Oh, why didn't you win the the Giro then?" or "Why are you not going to be at the tour?" and, and I think they have to a, a piece of advice I think would be for the people around him to to manage those expectations and genuinely trying to to explain to people how these things actually work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I fully because cycling is not it's that. not binary I, I like you know like like football you know like that you either win or you lose in in the big tournaments you know and then it's yeah. and, and cycling is not like that you you even if you're the best rider in the world you you lose a lot more than you win and I think that's the, the yeah. coming into this next part of his career the management of that for Evenepoel I think is fundamental yeah well. Yeah, I, I I agree, especially if you think about the way he's been winning races, uh, one-day races with those solos, and it won't happen like that uh, easily in the future because there will come a point where, where the other teams and nations will will play, play it differently tactically because at recent Worlds, it was in, inconceivable that they, they gave him that space by sending him, by letting him go in that breakaway with, with those uh, fellow uh, breakaway riders. I'm, I I just still can't believe they, they let them go like that. That was strange. Yeah. I mean, you also mentioned how quickly he's improved Renard, but this is a phenomenon we've seen. Particularly, you know, I think of Primoz Roglic and it's well documented how new he was to cycling and it was obvious how much improvement he was making every year. He was improving prodigiously every year. And something similar might be the case with Remco. I mean, he's only been cycling competitively for five or six years and that rate of improvement will slow down and it might even ground, grind to a halt 
um, fairly quickly. We've seen that also with mountain bikers who come over to the road. You know, they're very, very good and they improve very, very quickly in the first four or five years. And um, and then they plateau. But I guess, chaps, we shall see. And I think that concludes the entertainment for today. Remco, Remco. I keep calling you Remco or not. Um, all you yeah, but I've actually applied one. for an official name change. So. <laughs> You're probably paying, paying a bit less tax than him. Um, Renard, you have got to, well, you've got a car journey to Bruges awaiting you. You've got a long cyclocross season awaiting you. And then you've got the road season. I don't know how you're going to, you're going to summon the energy to all of, to do all of that, but you will, I'm sure. And Brian, you've got an appointment with the vet. Correct. Um, this morning. <laughs> um, for your cat, not for yourself. So we, we wish you well with that. Hope that goes well. And chaps, well, Brian will certainly be hearing from you in the next few weeks. And Renat will be checking in, hopefully, with you at some point later in the winter. Uh, and you can tell us then how the cyclocross season has gone. So thank you, thank chaps. You. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Pleasure. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.